Let us pray. May God be within us to refresh us, around us to protect us, before us to guide us, above us to bless us, beneath us to hold us up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The lessons for this morning are a pleasure for the preacher. They all relate to the theme, the power of God. This time, there's no need to rummage around with a magnifying glass to find the theme. It's right there, up front. First Kings, Ephesians, John, it's all right there. Let's start with the first Kings. I'm pleased this morning to be able to talk to you about the conclusion of the journey of the Ark of the Covenant that I spoke about when last I preached to you. Recall, back in July, that we had the Ark being brought from Obed-Edom's house, who can never forget that name, to, its, to David's new capital of Jerusalem, where it was housed in its tent, the tabernacle. Since then, we've heard that David longed to build an elegant house of cedar for the Ark and to be a focus for Israel's worship. Yahweh would not permit him to build it. It was left to David's son Solomon to build the building that we call the temple. It is now complete, and the ark is again on the move, coming from its resting place in the city of David. That's a neighborhood in Jerusalem nearby. To its home in the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple. Just as is so often the case, the Revised Common Lectionary has opted to omit many parts of the story. But the important elements are there. The bulk of the reading is made up of Solomon's great prayer of dedication of the temple. In his prayer, Solomon returns again and again to the theme of the morning's lessons, the power of God. He says, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love with your servants. Again, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. And again, he says, when a foreigner comes and prays toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigner calls to you, so that the peoples of the world may know your name and fear you. Solomon clearly has due regard for the power of Yahweh. He and all Israel saw in their victorious battles under Moses, Joshua, and David the power of Yahweh working to uphold them. Yahweh had made a covenant with Israel through Moses, and he had kept his word even when Israel fell away. They saw in the covenant Yahweh committing to fight for them if they would be faithful to him. Israel committed to show their loyalty to Yahweh by having no other gods before him, by obeying his laws, and offering sacrifices to him. This covenant was symbolized by the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which Moses brought down from Yahweh on Mount Sinai. These very tablets were inside the Ark of the Covenant, 
being housed this day in its glorious home, the temple. The temple can be viewed as a monument to the power of God. While it's probable that there were numerous other worship sites around Palestine, none can compare with the grandeur of Solomon's temple. From the renderings that I have seen of it, it certainly was an impressive display of the power of God. The colic for this morning prays, Grant, O merciful God, that your church, being gathered together in unity by your Holy Spirit, may show forth your power among all peoples to the glory of your name. In the reading from Ephesians, Paul is rising to his peroration in this final chapter of the letter. We hear him say, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God. Paul then goes on to list parts of the armor. The belt of truth around the waist. The breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith to quench the flaming arrows of the evil one the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. These are the implements of a warrior. Some have noted that all but the sword are defensive weapons. Of course, the function of the belt would seem to be to hold the sword when it's not in use. But this emphasis on the defensive weapons plays into the idea that the conflict is between spirit and matter. The enemy is seen as being materialism, and the battle is against greed, gluttony, theft, murder, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, and the like. Ain't that the truth? This makes the idea of spiritual warfare into a kind of pacifism and an exercise in self-improvement, and it keeps it neatly inside our heads where it need never contact the outside world. I think Paul would be appalled at such an idea. He sees the battle as one between belief and unbelief, and against the agent of unbelief, the devil or Lucifer or Satan, or whatever you want to call the personification of evil with a capital E. This was lived out in Paul's missionary zeal to convert as many souls as he could from other beliefs to belief in the one true God and his only son, Jesus. He suffered many things in fighting this battle. Stoning, beatings, imprisonment, and it certainly wasn't in his head. I recall, you recall please, that the sword was the sword of the spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It was the sword of God. Paul was quite familiar with it as he daily battled the forces arrayed against his efforts to spread belief in the one true God. Paul was intimately familiar with the power of God the Spirit, aptly mentioned in the Collect for this morning. In the reading from John's Gospel, Jesus is continuing his comments on the Mass, which we have heard the last few weeks. He says... Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, 
So whoever eats me will live because of me. Each time that you receive communion, you hear the words, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, or variants thereof. Yet what is put in your hand looks and feels and tastes like bread, and in the cup, wine. How this can be is a subject that I have spoken about with you previously, and I don't propose to delve into it today. But suffice to say that it is the belief of Catholic Christendom that the consecrated bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ. While I am a cradle Episcopalian, I spent my formative years in a snake belly low parish. <laughs> Many of you know which parish that was, but I shan't mention any names. There we had morning prayer as the principal Sunday service all but one Sunday a month when we had the Holy Communion. As a result, I knew nothing of the reverence for the sacrament which you see here at St. Luke's. It was not until I entered seminary that I was taught Eucharistic theology. Then I came to know just what wonderful things these holy mysteries are and what a privilege it is to preside at the altar and be the agent of change that affects their consecration. It is because the bread and wine are the body and blood of Jesus that you see them treated with so much care and respect and deference. When we handle these elements, as they are called, we are handling the Lord, God. Any elements that remain after communion is distributed are either reserved in the tabernacle under the crucifix or are reverently consumed. We have a special sink in the sacristy called a piscina, it is used for rinsing the patens and chalices and purificators. The piscina drains to a dry well beside the church so that any trace bits of the precious body and blood that may by chance remain are returned to the earth and not sent into the pollution of the sewer system. The precious body and blood of Jesus are special special beyond words. Evidently, those listening to Jesus had a hard time with his words about his body and blood. They say, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Any observant Jew, and I dare say most of us, would be repulsed at the idea of consuming human flesh and blood. The answer that Jesus gives to the objection may seem odd. He says, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In these words, Jesus removes any ground for the misunderstanding. He means that he has been speaking of a higher order of life than the world known only to the senses. His true home is in that higher realm from which he has come 
and to which he will return in the ascension. When the disciples see him with the eyes of faith, after his life on earth is finished, they will understand what it is to take the living bread, to enjoy eternal life. It is the life-giving quality of his message as the word of God, which Jesus has symbolized as food and drink. But it is not only his words that give life, it is himself in the life laid down for the world, his body and blood freely given for all. Once liberated from the condition of this earthly life, his spirit will be a strengthening power in all who believe in him. Put another way, his words are not an invitation to cannibalism, but an invitation to partake of spiritual realities of a higher order. Yet in spite of Jesus' explanation, many of his disciples distanced themselves from him as a result of his words. This hard saying, as the Revised Standard Version puts it. This provides me an opportunity to comment on an erroneous bit of church growth pseudo-wisdom. One hears variations of the idea that if only ministers would preach the real gospel, their pews would be crowded beyond bursting. Well, I trust that none would accuse the master of preaching anything other than the true gospel. And yet many of his followers drifted away as a result of it. In these times of strife in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, one hears appeals to orthodoxy as the true gospel. <clears throat> this pericope, remember that word? This pericope puts those appeals in their place, doesn't it? It would seem that the shrinkage was quite severe, as Jesus is left asking the apostles if they too will go away. This gives rise to the Johannine version of the synoptic account of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Peter says, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter could be brash, impulsive, craven, a few more adjectives, but at this time he was right on message. He has put into a few words the faith journey. First, there is a tiny grain of faith that ventures on the possibility that it may be true. Then, with time, something surer and steadier, faith grown to knowledge, a knowledge built out of the solid facts of personal experience, a life lived with God. But it is only that first daring step that can land us there. 
Peter seems to be in the knowledge phase in this pericope. Yet only at Jesus' last Passover meal, on what we call Monday Thursday, would he realize just what Jesus meant when he spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Peter's words vividly show how the power of God in Jesus had changed his life. So, when you receive Holy Communion, think on the power of God that has changed ordinary bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And that strengthens you for a life in his service. Amen.